Hi, I'm Cynthia Weil, and my book is called I'm Glad I Did. It's a novel that's appropriate for young adults and not-so-young adults. It takes place in the summer of 63 in the Brill Building, where songs were born. It's an iconic building in New York City, and my book weaves together music and murder um, in the story of a young woman pursuing her songwriting dream. Today I have with me someone who did just that. He had nothing to do with murder, but he did pursue his songwriting dream, and he succeeded in a big way. He spanned both coasts and carved a name for himself in the history of pop songwriting. He has a memoir out that we'll talk about later, but right now I'd like you to meet Bobby Hart of the same Voice and Heart team. And hey, the same... Nice to be here. Okay, thank you. So tell me about the beginnings. You're originally from Phoenix. Is anyone in the family musical? Uh, kind of. I mean, it was our, our, our family kind of revolved around church, and it was uh, what I call a rock and roll church, Pentecostal church, and great uh, tambourine-shaking music. So we were there three or four times a week, and my dad played the banjo in the, in the church band, and, uh, and my mother played a little piano, and, and they were both kind of singers. Uh, nothing professional. Well, so much great music started in, in church. Um, so yours is not an unusual story that way. But then you left Phoenix and headed for L.A. What was your dream then? Well, I thought it, my whole childhood growing up, I thought I was going to be a DJ because I was I was painfully shy in my childhood. And, and I knew I, I wanted to do something in music. But I figured, well, I can I can be a DJ and nobody will see me, but I can still play great music and so I came here at 18 years old to go to Don Martin School of Radio in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and and it, it didn't take me long though to uh, to change my my vision. What did I, change your vision? Well, uh, you know, I got a job printing record labels so I could you know pay my rent, and uh, you know I was going to night school, and I would walk down Vine Street every day, past this little recording studio that had a marquee that said, "Come in and see what your voice." Sounds like ten dollars, <laughs> and it was starting to, yeah, it was it was right there that morning and night. I would see it, and it started to gnaw on me. And finally, I got my nerve up on a Saturday, and I went in and I made a little demo, put down a Jerry Lee Lewis uh, version of "You Are My Sunshine," and I sang backgrounds and lead. And the guy, you know, put some echo on, made me sound so good. I was hooked. I figured, hey, I can I can do this. I can be a rock and roll star. Fantastic! You fell in love with yourself in a certain <laughs> way. Well, you know, you, you just you, your visions change as you go along, don't they? I mean, I never thought in the fifties, growing up with that kind of music, that you had to be quite, you know, had to be professional, you know, like the Sinatra kind of singers. That I could never do that. But then rock and roll changed everything, and so I started to see. Well, this is basically what I, you know, maybe I could do this. So sure, it's, a, it's here, a real dream evolution. Yeah, dream and, evolution. Uh, how and when did you meet Tommy Boyce, who became your partner in songwriting and producing? Well, I met him right away. Uh, like I said, 18, he was 18. Uh, I had a record deal within four months of hitting town. Uh, wow, and, impressive. Yeah. And both, you know, it was it was the it was rock and roll days. It was rockabilly days, and uh, you the, all these little record companies were lining Vine Street all around Hollywood and Vine, and 
and uh, looking for the next Richie Valens or whatever. Who I guess it was before Richie's time, but so yeah, there were those opportunities, and so I met Tommy at the office of my record producer manager, and we just kind of became hangout buddies, uh, and uh, eventually started helping each other with each other's songs because we both wrote separately and we. We didn't take credit in those days. We just would say, hey, what about this? And maybe this would make it better. Just trying to help mm-hmm. as friends. Then and Tommy what got was a, your first hit together? Well, uh, uh, Tommy got a break. To, Tommy had a couple of hits before me. Uh, he he got uh, a top 10 Fats Domino record when he was like 19 or 20, maybe 19 years, years old or something. And uh, and then he got a break to, to go to New York and work for Dunes Records as a writer and then he had a couple of hits with Curtis Lee called first the biggest one was Pretty Little Angel Eyes mm-hmm. so when I finally got um, the opportunity to join him it was 63 when I got back to New York and then we started writing together pretty much exclusively and had our first hits back there where um, Jay and the Americans come a little bit closer and had a hit with uh, Chubby Checker and then I had a hit with Teddy Randazzo co-writing uh, called Hurt So Bad with, uh, with Little Anthony. Um, Teddy Randazzo played a big part in my life because it was up at his office that I met. I was writing with him, and it was up at his office that I met my husband. Is that true? It wasn't my husband then. Yeah, uh-huh. And, so, and was that, is that the office where Bell Sound was, or was that later? No, it was the office where Teddy, um, where Kenny Greengrass and Stan Catron had an office, and they and managed uh, Teddy. Was Don Costa part of that? I, I don't know because it was you know one of my first writing experiences, so I was just concentrating on what I was doing, and then this cute guy walked in, and that was <laughs> it. <laughs> well, and did, you didn't think Teddy was cuter than than Barry? No, I didn't. You know, I mean, <laughs> Teddy was very cute, but um, yeah. I don't know. There was something about Barry. Something happened. Um, oh. I remember loving "Come a Little Bit Closer," and I didn't even know you wrote it. But it was a terrific song and a terrific record. Was that a regular write the song and pitch it to them kind of situation? Yeah, um, I. I Tommy, as I said, had been there a couple of years before me, so he knew Wes Farrell, and <clears throat> he introduced me to him on a, in, a, in an elevator at 1650 one morning when he said, you got anything for Chubby? I'm, I'm taking the train up to uh, Philly to play him some stuff tomorrow. So we ran back and we wrote something, and it was Chubby's next single. Um, what year did you and Tommy uh, sign your publishing deal with Screen Gems? We signed. Tommy signed about five months early, well, maybe four months earlier than me. And at the end of '65, I'm, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. end of end of '64, I signed in early '65, March of '65. And then, did you stay in New York, or did you go back to L.A.? They uh, he sent Tommy out here to the West Coast office as soon as he signed him, and I joined him as soon as I was I was singing background for Teddy. And we were singing Way of a Clown, you know, every night at the Thunderbird in Vegas. 
which well, that was Barry's song, "The Way of a Clown." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he write it with Teddy or, or by himself? No, he wrote it with Howie Greenfield. Okay, so <clears throat> that and a lot of other songs. Of course, Teddy by that time was starting to produce Little Anthony, so we we sang my hits and his hits and. But anyway, I was one of the Dazzlers. It was Teddy Van Dazzler and the Dazzlers. <clears throat> and we'd play the Thunderbird uh, 12 weeks on, 12 weeks off. So I'd be in New York riding with Tommy, and then I'd go on the road. And one of the trips mm-hmm. on the road, Tommy got signed, came came west, and started calling me and saying, look, I can get you the same great deal, $100 a week. You don't have to <laughs> be on the road anymore. So I gave notice and, and joined Tommy uh, early 65. Mm-hmm. So um, how did you guys get hooked up with the monkeys? Just uh, one of those appointments that uh, Lester Sill would send us out for. We went over to the Columbia lot and met with Bert Schneider, and he told us what they wanted to do, American Beatles on television and what they needed for the pilot show, and and, uh, promised us that we could uh, produce the records. So we we sold them on... Yeah, we sold them that uh, on the fact that we would we were their guys and we really got it and we did. We were very excited about the fact that that we could have a television show behind records. That combination had been very explosive for Ricky Nelson. We were, you know, we were really excited about it. And uh, and we worked on on the pilot show and and getting ready, uh, making our plans and our what we thought the group should sound like uh, in the studio. And then finally, after the show sold, Donnie Kushner flies out, which he doesn't, he didn't like to do, right? It, was, it wasn't much of a flyer. But mm, I know that. Involved. Huh? What? I know Donnie didn't like to fly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions about him when you, when you get to interviewing me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he came out and he said, he called us into his office and, and uh, he said, uh, you guys have had hits as writers, but you haven't had any hits as producers. So project of this size, you guys are off the project and bringing in some other, some big guns. So he tried a bunch of other producers. By by July, show's going to go on in September. By July, he didn't have anything that he liked. And, oh my uh, gosh! And so uh, you know, he, didn't, he even had uh, Carol and Jerry fly out and try some stuff, and they had problems in the studio with the guys. The guys could be a little. Uh, testy, not testy, but just, you know, just, I, I don't know how to describe it. They just had a lot of energy and they weren't always, uh, as I understand it, cooperative <laughs> with, with some of the other producers. So, uh, July comes along and Tommy and I go into Donnie's office next door to ours and, and we say, look, how about this? I'm working in, I'm working nights <clears throat> with my group, with my band, the Candy Store Profits. What if I take this group into a little rehearsal studio that costs ten dollars an hour, work up some arrangements on it and some of the new songs we've done, and you just listen. If you like what you hear, give us our project back. Uh, otherwise, we won't bug you. So he came down and he was blown away by what we played him, and he said, "Okay, you're back on the back on the job." And then you wrote "Hey Hey" with the Monkees, right? We had written that, and these were the songs that were being produced by Snuffy Garrett and Mickey Most and these other top-notch producers, but Donnie didn't like what he was hearing. Well, he sure had a good set of ears. He, I guess he, he knew 
what he wanted, and you guys yeah. provided it. And you wrote the Monkey's <laughs> first number one song, Last Train to Clarksville. Right. Was, was that written with the Monkeys in mind? Oh, yeah. We were uh, we were already producing the first album when we wrote that, and we needed another song or two. And was there an inspiration for it, or you just came up with a song, or how did it come I about? Came up, came up with a title, but it was a mistake. I was I was pulling in Tommy and I were uh, renting a house uh, in the Hollywood Hills, and I was my pulling pulling in one night. I was flipping the the stations, and I and I heard just the tail end of Paperback Writer, <laughs> where uh, Paul McCartney singing Paperback, and I thought he was saying. Take the last. And I just heard the end of it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I told Tommy the title the next day, and of course we heard the full record. Knew it had nothing to do with, with the last anything to anywhere. So he said it's a good title. So we took, tossed around um, cities or towns, and and uh, came up with that. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it, when you look back on what brought a song about, and that was a mishear, um, inspired Last Train to Clarksville. You know, I Want to Be Free is one of my favorite Monkey songs, and the simplicity Uh, of that song is just beautiful, and so is the record. Did that one have a story behind it? Well, I guess every song has a story behind it. Some of them are boring, but I'll tell you you this one. It's one of the... uh, it's one of the only songs Tommy and, and I ever wrote uh, without being on a deadline or, or uh, somebody saying you, we need this song for so-and-so. We were just both uh, home one night, and uh, I heard I came upstairs, and Tommy was you know, strumming his guitar, and he said, I, I've been listening to this uh, Roger Miller record called One Dying and a Burying, a song about suicide. And uh, mm. and he said, I, I like the last line. I want to be free. Mm. And so he, he so he played me uh, he played me what turned out to be the second verse of I want to be free. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I I saw it as a second. I said I think maybe that's the second verse. Maybe we should start out with something more poetic. Bluebirds flying by me and the waves out on the blue sea, those lines. And so he said, yeah, that's mm-hmm. pretty good. So we we made that first verse, and then his second verse was, don't say you love me, say you like me, and all that. Which, But looking back, Tommy and I wrote a bunch of songs during that era that were totally about not being committed in relationships. <laughs> but people have actually told me that this was their, their you know, couples have told me this was their romantic song. So you know, Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Now, anyway, that you we, and Tommy became a group as well, besides being behind-the-scenes songwriters and producers. Um, yeah. Were you still working with the Monkees when that happened? No, it was, it was perfect timing when the Monkees pulled their coup and uh, had Donnie fired and uh, got the right to produce their own records and be in control of their own records. That was perfect timing because we had been getting all this we were all the fan mags, you know, Tiger Beat and what Team Beat, whatever, as the guys behind the monkeys. <clears throat> so we were we had offers from record labels, and Tommy and I had both started out to be artists. That's what we both wanted to do. So this was an opportunity to 
to take uh, an offer we had from A and M and do our own thing. So this was kind of a late realization of an early dream. Yeah, it was uh, stepping and, up it, front. Know, it was it was uh, it was a long time coming, really, because for my first record deal in '58. This was 67, so nine years. And before we even had any hits as writers, it was a good six years. At least me, it was a good six years of trying to learn my craft and getting better at what I was doing. And it, it, it's, uh, you know, Tommy and I had all those years of what we wrote alone. Mm-hmm. We both did, we both did melodies, both did lyrics, which was total a total contrast to you, New York, Alden, New York, writing stable, right? Right. Had you. The, you divided duties. Yeah, that we mostly had and, teams. One person did yeah. one thing, and the other did the other. But um, yeah, how did how did that? I don't, I don't not to take over the interview, but how did that work? Because I it's almost, I'm always curious about did did you do did the melody start first or the lyrics start first? How did you? Well, with it? us, it, it worked both ways. Um, sometimes melody first, sometimes lyric, sometimes an idea, and then a melody. Sometimes a title and you know, um, we weren't would you ever set sit, would you ever sit down in one together? way of doing things. Yeah. Would you ever sit down together and just start? From oh, absolutely. Because uh-huh. that's how Tommy we and I worked. We, most of the time, later on, we we would start things separately and help each other finish. But most of our, our career together, it was just it was just fun writing together because we both could balance off both both. Uh, skills, I guess you might say. So, then in 75, you went on the road with Mickey and Dolan's and Davy Jones, and um, as, were you called the guys who wrote the songs or something like that? <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't want to license, it was too expensive to license the word the monkeys from whoever owned it. So <laughs> we called it the, the, the Great Golden Hits of the Monkeys show, starring the guys who wrote them the guys who sang them and the guys who wrote them. But we uh, built ourselves, when we we signed with Capitol and did a couple of albums, and we built ourselves as Dolan's Jones, Boyce, and Hart. But nobody can pronounce it. I mean, try to do that three times fast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, then then you all split up again, right? After that? Well, it, it was a short, it was two years. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was 10 years after the Monkees first came on the scene, and we had had hits, so uh, well, the, what happened was my friend came back from Thailand, and he said, there's a promoter over there, I'd like to uh, do some shows, with, have the monkeys come over, would you call Mickey up and ask him? So I did, and Mike, Mickey said, well, Michael is not interested in uh, touring with the monkeys, and we would, Peter's kind of dropped off the face of the earth, we haven't talked to him for a long time. So mm-hmm. I told my friend, and he, he said, well, why don't you and Tommy go out with the uh, with Mickey and Davey. So we met, had lunch to talk about it, and we had so much fun at that lunch. We said, hey, let's try this, you know, see what's what's going on. So while we waited for that Southeast Asian tour, which got turned into uh, a ten, 10 dates in Japan and uh, Kuala Lumpur and uh, Singapore and Hong Kong and Taipei. So we waited for that to be put together. We started going out and doing what Mickey used to call every amusement park known to man in the States <laughs> doing local domestic gigs. So we did that for a year. 
year and a half, and then we did the Southeast Asian tour, and then everybody kind of went their own way. Tommy moved to England. Mickey moved to England. Uh, the Englishman stayed in America. And <laughs> I just kept on doing what I was doing here. And then uh, it was about 1983, I think, that you got an Oscar nomination for a song yeah. written with Austin Roberts that was in Tender yeah. Mercies. How did that... That's true. Yeah, well, uh, did, does that have... Um, how did that come about? Did you write the song and or get the assignment yeah, for the came, movie? or? We did. It came through Lester uh, again because uh, Austin was signed to Screen Gems at that time. I, I wasn't anymore, but I was writing with Austin. Uh, Austin... Uh, uh, Danny Jansen and I had produced a, a couple of top ten records with Austin um, earlier in the 70s. Uh, one was called Something's Wrong With Me. And uh, so I remained friends with Austin, and he'd come out from Nashville, and, and we would write together. So we wrote for that project, and uh, and Lester didn't realize that you had to submit it, I guess, to to the Academy for consideration. So... We got this call from uh, Betty Buckley, who said um, some of my friends who were on that committee, that part of the academy, would like to not would like to nominate your song. They loved the song, but he never never he never requested it. So Lester hurriedly uh, had the paperwork done and and uh, messengers over to me at the studio where I was working, and we they made an exception and let us in at the last minute. <laughs> so so you got, well, you, what you, song you, won you, that year? Uh, uh, from uh, Flashdance. Uh, oh, that was a tough one to go up against. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, which one was it? Was it from? Uh, yeah, was it Siren uh, Carol? Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, what a feeling! Is that what it was called? Maybe? What a feeling! Yeah, that, it was a great record too. You know. Yes. Um, the, you guys were nominated too. You, yes, you we were nominated, there. and um, we lost to um, Every Breath You Take or something like that. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. But wasn't it fun and, just to go? Wasn't it fun to be well, there for it? Well, it really that, was. And yeah. it, it was an exciting night, but I made a big mistake with my dress, and I wore a long <laughs> dress. I had wanted to wear a short one, but the designer said, you can't do that. And I kept praying we wouldn't win because I thought I would trip. And I also <laughs> thought, gee, we got nominated. We'll get nominated next year, and I'll wear a better dress, you know. <laughs> and, of course, we never got nominated again. Um, and, um, the, you know, this our song became an instant standard. It was somewhere out there from an American tale. And yeah. I don't know whatever happened to that other song. I know what you mean, yeah. But, it's, it's yeah. Strange. Yeah. Strange how that works What out. made you decide and, and, uh, that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, we, that was that was a blast seeing you know sitting there with all the stars, but we had actually more fun at the Golden Globes. Is that your experience too? Well, at the Golden Globes, we were seated so far in the back, we knew we weren't definitely weren't going to win. So, um, you know, at first I, I tried to figure out a route to the stage, but um, actually everybody drinks a lot at the Golden Globes, and so it's a lot more fun. Everybody's very hungry at the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> what you made you decide the time was... 
what made you decide the time was right for a memoir from you? Uh, I don't know. Something I've been thinking about doing for many years, and I did it in a couple of different forms. I was never happy with it. And uh, my friend Glenn Ballantyne and I were talking about it, and he suggested a couple of co-writers, and I didn't like their vibe. And uh, he one day said, you know, I can do this with you. I, I, I have this PR firm in Colorado, and I write speeches for governors, and I, so I do a lot of writing. And and I read a lot, so I kind of know. So it was just a great experience writing it with him. I think that was the catalyst was when he said he would uh, co-write it with me. So let's talk about your book a little bit. It's called Psychedelic Bubblegum, Boys and Heart, yeah. the Monkeys, and Turning Mayhem into Miracles, which is sounds like it was something you did pretty easily. But what was the um, what was the experience of writing prose for you? And did well, you work uh, with your collaborator was, one-on-one? He's in Colorado. I'm in Los Angeles, and so we we worked back and forth. Uh, it was a different experience, and that was kind of my handicap in the beginning was that I was used to not only telling, you know, lyrical songs in 12 lines, but I was used to telling the stories that I'd been asked in radio interviews about the monkey days and so on and punchlines as well, because they want you to get on, you know, if you're in limited time, they want you to get on to the next. So I, I, I just, there was a real economy in the way I told stories until I got with Glenn, who taught me right away, and then I was able to do it on my own, mm-hmm. uh, to to flesh it out, get into the details, show take the reader with you, what does it smell like, what does it look like, what are you feeling inside, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> once I saw the formula, then and uh, it, it worked really good. And he would he would write, and I would write, and I would put things back in my own voice mm-hmm. that he wrote, and he would edit what I wrote, and it was just really a good experience. Also, the the spiritual uh, journey part of the book was also his idea because uh, we shared the same spiritual path. Uh, uh, we're both followers of Pramati Yogananda, and uh, for you know since the since the 60s. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was nice to weave that in uh, what what I had you know from my childhood on. Just it's not much about that until you get to the last couple of chapters. But anybody who sticks with me that far, uh, we'll see. And so you found um, more peace once you began to follow Paramahansa Yogananda. Yeah, and more than that, I think my, I don't, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of my contemporaries um, aren't around, you know, didn't, yes. didn't make it through those troubled waters, and uh, I think that he saved my life in many ways. I think I, he just, I was able to see changes I had to make in, make in my own behavior, and, and, uh, and you know, just, it's not just yoga meditation, of course, is the, is the key to it, uh, to this path, but uh, it's also about learning techniques for changing your bad habits and a whole, whole lot more to life than just, just the meditation part. How much meditating do you do each day? Well, I meditate morning and night, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it varies on the day, of course, but somewhere between a half hour and an hour each time. It's fantastic. Um I know that Barry was into Paramahansa Yogananda for a while, and it was a, a very beautiful time for him. Good. 
It's it, 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 those those books that he wrote, the main one, which is a kind of a spiritual classic called Autobiography of a Yoga of a Yogi. Right. It's a fascinating book for anybody who just wants some great stories, but also to me it was a real eye opener, and I knew I had to to try to learn as much as I could from him. And so you really came into this after your crazy um, bubblegum life was over, <laughs> or was it during this time? It was uh, it was a little bit. Um, I started actually started uh, reading spiritual books again when I was working with Teddy in Vegas, so 64, mm-hmm. and uh, searching, and then I found uh, autobiography. My, my friend Barry gave it to me for Christmas in 68, so that was a big stepping stone. And then, I, But I was in the midst of my, the height of my career, which was pretty hectic with mm-hmm. Tommy, and uh, and so I kind of put it on the back burner a lot, and, you know, and then it started to get heat up a little bit more. In the 70s, by 1980, the tur- turning point was when I met my wife, Marianne, and uh, and we started getting serious together about our spiritual path. And mm-hmm. then on, we, I kind of uh, took a sabbatical from public life and just served at the church. And uh, do you do you think there's another book that you want to write, or did you get it all out of your system with this one? Uh I think we'll be writing. I think Glenn and I will write some more, probably more, uh, more in the self-help area than in the memoir area. We probably mm-hmm. won't be doing, uh, won't be doing a novel as apparently you have. Mm-hmm. That must have been interesting. Well, it certainly was. It was uh, a whole new skill set, as, as you yeah. well know, um, because I had the same problem you did. I'm used to doing um, everything very economically. Yeah. And, so there was a, a learning curve, but I had a wonderful editor who helped me a great deal. Great. And um, so re- people, whoever is listening, remember this title, Psychedelic Bubblegum. It's a great title. I love it, Bobby. And I want to thank you so much for coming on and telling us a little bit about your um, psychedelic bubblegum life. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And uh but I think you should have me back on sometime where I can interview you because I just have so many questions about how you wrote these mega hits and uh, and how you and Barry work together. That would be sweet. Okay. Thank you again, and take care. Good luck with everything you do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.